All right. Um, hey, we're about to start a new series this morning. Before we jump into the message, let's pray and just ask God to speak to our hearts and um, encourage us from his word this morning. God, I thank you so much for this church family. Um, I love this place, love these people, God, and it's just a privilege to be um, worshiping you with them. I pray, God, just thinking about how you've made this place what it is, um, the different lives and stories and experiences and wisdom that are in this place. Um, you knew what we needed within community, and you made this place what we needed. And God, I pray that um, you wouldn't just draw us as a tighter group and more uh, close with one another, that we would first and foremost become close with you, that we would you would draw us to yourself, that our relationships with you is what would make this place powerful and meaningful. And, and so I pray that, God, you would speak through your word this morning. I pray that you would give us a hunger for your word, a desire for your word to understand who you are, um, the beautiful truth and love and grace and wisdom that you communicate to us. Um, just thank you for it, and just be with us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Um, before I get started, I also want to say um, huge shout out and thanks to our leadership team. Last week, I, um, around, not, not to give you all the nasty details, but around midnight last week, started feeling sick, um, had de definite uh, experiential proof of being sick um, over the next four or five hours. Thought I would try to be, you know, be able to fight it out, but around 6.37, it was clear I wasn't. And so let them know at about 7.30, hey guys, <laughs> I'm not going to be there today. Um, and but I was able to stream the service, and what a powerful service, powerful time, and our leadership team really stepped up very quickly and led that. So can we thank our leadership team and just all those who were part of that? It was super awesome. Um, so I think I'm just going to get sick once a month just so that you guys can experience no, um, they, were, they were great. Um, today we're starting a new series in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Um, and to be honest, that's a hard thing to introduce. I mean, let's just be honest here, okay? All right, no judgment zo zone, no judgment at all. By show of hands, how many of you have ever attempted to read the Bible all the way through and started out good, but when you hit Leviticus, it was just like screeching halt? Who's ever had that experience? Raise your hand. Let me see. Okay, perfect. Again, no judgment zone, being completely honest. How many of you don't know what a Leviticus is? I'd never heard of that. What is Leviticus? No idea. Okay, good. Fair enough. How many of you have never heard anybody preach out of Leviticus? So let's hear that. Okay, do you see like the forest that's just gone up on all of these? There's one study that came out of the UK on the frequency of how often biblical books are preached, preached out of, and as far as just all the different churches and pastors and everything. And Leviticus was tied for fifth from the bottom of those that aren't typically covered. Um, Samuel Bellantine says it is perhaps the most neglected of the neglected biblical books. And so I already have work cut out for us here. The majority have either not heard of the book, have not read the book, have avoided the book, or never heard it preached on. Yay! <laughs> but we are starting Leviticus. So again, why not just join the majority, skip it like the rest, and jump into the story about Jonah and the whale? Um, that was actually the most popular Old Testament uh, book. I don't know if I want to get into Leviticus stuff. Let's talk about the fish. Um, so why do this? Well, for starters, 
2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture, all 66 books of the Bible, and that includes Leviticus. That means that simply because we have not heard of it or have struggled to understand it, doesn't mean that Leviticus is any less inspired by God. And it doesn't mean it's not useful. It is. Yes, there's some difficult parts to it. Yes, there's some parts that are weird. Maybe parts that are a tad gross. But God has given his people this book for a reason. It's important. It's useful. And we want to understand it. And so part of, that's the goal, is today what I want to do is just give a larger overview of what this book is about, and then we're going to spend the next couple months diving into this book. And I have to say, just from a personal perspective, I have been waiting to be able to say, we're starting a series on Leviticus for the last 14 years I've been part of New Life. Um, They showed the video last week. Uh, They kind of were scraping the bottom of the barrel for the talent for the all-church video update. But the rest of the church is actually doing an Exodus series. We did that over the summer. I asked, hey, can we do the Exodus series in the summer so that I can do Leviticus in the fall? And then if I do Leviticus in the fall, I promise I'll never bring it up ever again. And they were like, yes, that sounds great. I don't know which part that they thought that sounded great, but um, that's where we're at. And so I am ecstatic and very excited because to me, I think that this is one of the most powerful and important Old Testament books that helps us understand what it means to be the people of God. Part of understanding why it's so important is understanding how it fits in the Bible. How does this fit within the story of what God is doing in the Old Testament? It says in Genesis 12, we read this. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. God tells Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Have any of you made nations before? No, I figured no one. And so there's no like, I don't know what the recipe is for that. I don't know what the instructions, like there's like an Ikea thing or something like that. But as far as thinking through what do you need to make a nation, there are three really important aspects to make a nation. First off, you need people. People to make that nation. God is going to make Abram's descendants into this special nation. Not a group of people that God is electing from the rest of the world and the rest can be as damned to torment for the rest of eternity. That's not the idea here. No, God is selecting this group of people who will then in turn bless the world that God will use to then bring the rest of the world to be part of his nation. And so he needs a group of people to make a nation. So we need people, right? Second thing you need to make a nation is you need land. There has to be some place for that nation uh, to live. God promises them a land where they will live and grow and cultivate and thrive. We learn about these people and we learn about this land in Genesis, Genesis and Exodus. 
As God's people grow, they are enslaved, though, in Egypt. We find out about that at the end of Genesis. It's what we talked about this summer in Exodus. But then we see how God graciously rescues them because of his faithfulness to them, because of his promises, promises to Abram. And then all summer we looked at Exodus about how God rescued them and began moving them into the promised land, establishing them as a nation, which brings us to the third thing. You need people, you need land, and if we're making a nation, the last thing that you need is law. You need a law. Now, law is how a society orders themselves, how they go about living their lives, how they go about knowing what's appropriate and not appropriate. When we think of law in our world, we know it is important and we know law is necessary. But if you, let's just be honest, who's ever seen a PDF of a law looked at it, read a couple paragraphs, and just went, no, this is why we have lawyers. Who's ever had that kind of thing? I mean, it's even, comedian Jim Gaffigan said this, that's why there's so many lawyers, because we say, how much do I have to pay you to read this for me? It can be tedious, it can be technical, it can be dry, but we know in reality, I, don't, I haven't read it all, but I know it's there, and I know it's necessary, and I know it's important. But here's the thing that we have to grasp. The Israelites in the Old Testament would not have thought about Leviticus, the book that forms the law. They would not have thought about the law the same way that we do. They would not have been like, can we have somebody read this for us? Just tell me what I need to know. This is something different. Their attitude, they knew that this was God speaking to them. God's word to them. God's guidance, God's wisdom, God's direction, God's protection, God's provision. This is God speaking to them as the nation on how to be the nation. So their default starting attitude was of reverence. What do you have for us, God? What are you saying to us, God? You are speaking. We will listen and we will follow. I say this because as we come to the law, think about, oh, law, oh, rules, this and that. That's not the attitude we need to have for this. We need to have with that same reverence, worshipful expectation, God, let me hear from you. God, let me understand you. God, let me know who you are. That's a little bit different than how we typically think of law, right? But when we come to this section of scripture, that's the attitude that we have to have. God, let me hear from you. God, let me know you. God, guide me and direct me. And so as we, does that make sense how it fits? Story in the Old Testament, as they're moving out of Egypt, becoming established in the promised land, God gives them this law to say, here's how my people will be. And we're going to spend the next two months within this book, again, talking about it. We won't be able to get into every single detail of every single passage, but we're going to look at key texts that encapsulate the message. Today, though, again, I want to give a couple key concepts that we need to grasp that will help us see the details and see the larger way that the story works. I love how the Bible Project summarizes what Leviticus is about. They say this, Placed right in between Exodus and Numbers, Leviticus acts as a bridge highlighting the need for restoration of the relationship between God and humans. It's not just a long list of laws and rituals. 
Leviticus is a story about God's desire to repair his relationship with Israel so that they can live with him in a restored holy space and rest with him as a reformed people who represent his character to all nations. I think I love how they kind of hit that first line on that screen. They hit what we typically think. Ah, it's just laws. It's just a list of rules. But no, there is so much depth here and something amazing that God is doing. And the reality is that, that God wants us to be this type of a people, people that are living restored to him, reformed to his character, that we would represent who he is in the world where we, we live and go about our day-to-day. And so as we think about this kind of larger perspective of what Leviticus is about, there's three big-picture things I want you to know about the book. First one is this, is that God wants to be in community with us. God wants to be in community with us. As we go into Leviticus and we try to understand this book, we have to come into it knowing God wants to be with us. God wants to be in community with us. Actually backing up out of Leviticus into part of the end of Exodus, Exodus 25, uh, verses, first couple of verses of Exodus 25 say this, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Then have them make me a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Those verses 8 and 9 are of utmost importance there. I make, make a sanctuary for me so that I can dwell amongst them. Build this exactly how I'm going to show you. You can go back later, and if you start in Exodus 25 to the end of the book, the rest of Exodus, that last portion, is basically the blueprints, the explanation of how they built the tabernacle. This is what the tabernacle looks like. I'm going to show you a picture of like a model of it uh, from today's perspective. This walled tent, you can kind of see the walls around it, encloses an area in the middle where the Israelites would come to offer sacrifices and perform different worship rituals, details we're going to get into. But they would all come in, they would be able to be part of this court, they would bring their sacrifices before the Lord. That smaller tent that you see there inside was divided into two sections. The first section was the holy place, and that could be only entered by the priest. It, was, it housed the menorah, the table of showbread, the incense altar, all made of gold and symbolic and especially important for their worship as a nation. The second room in the back part of it was called the Holy of Holies. This is the most holy place in the entire structure and in the Israeli, Israelite camp. It held the Ark of the Covenant, which held the law and represented God's glory in their midst. This portable structure that God had the Israelites construct was central to their worship and their identity. This defined not only who they were, but the rhythms that made their day-to-day lives. They knew when they came here, they were coming into the presence of God. What does this have to do with God wanting to be in community? Well, think about the Garden of Eden. God made a special place to walk with and be with humanity. Their sin ruined things and made it where they were kicked out of the garden. But that doesn't mean that God stopped wanting to be with humanity. 
He wants to be with us. He wants to be dwell amongst us. He wants that type of relationship with us. So in the same way that he created Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden to be amongst them, here he is creating a nation of his people and he has made a dwelling place so that he can be amongst them again. He has made this, it's almost like a little recreation of Eden, if you will, to be able to be in their midst and dwell amongst them. And he says that, I want you to build this so that I can dwell amongst you. When we go through Leviticus, we must read it from coming from this aspect of God's heart for his people. He has stayed faithful to his promises. He has never left them, even when they have royally messed up. And he continues to work to be with them, to guide them. We cannot make the mistake that these laws and these rituals of Leviticus were so that the people could do them to earn a place to be God's people. That is not how they work. God already graciously rescued them. He did the work to make them free. What he's showing them is, I'm going to be amongst you and show you how to live as free people. Leviticus is not about earning a place as God's people. It's about being one of God's people. What does it mean to be the people of God? That truth stays constant throughout the Bible. The New Testament teaches us that we can be one of God's people, not because of anything we do, but because what God and his desire to be with us, he did everything necessary to be in relationship with us through the work of Jesus. It's never about earning a place with God. It's always about receiving his free gift of grace. And so he set them free, and now he's saying, I want to be amongst you. If you don't get anything else out of this morning, get that. God wants to be with you. God knows everything about us, all the inside and out, the good and the bad, everything about our stories, nothing hidden from him. He wants to be with you. He loves you. He is gracious and merciful toward you. And he's desiring that you would be in relationship with him. This is God's heart. He wants to be in community with us. That leads to the second thing. God wants his community to worship him. God wants his community to worship him. Leviticus begins explaining different, right out of the gate, we're going to get into this next week, the first few chapters, it talks about these different sacrifices that the people will come and they will bring. The book starts out telling them, tell the people to bring their offerings and what that looks like and why they do that. It doesn't only, it start, the book starts off with those things, but the book doesn't only discuss these sacrifices and rituals. It also talks about the way the people are how, when they leave the tent. You're coming here to offer, uh, offer something to God, but what do you, how do you live for him as you leave this place? So the rest of the book also talks about how they treat one another, how they interact with their neighbors, how they interact with foreigners, how they interact with family, with one another, how they see their resources, amongst a bunch of other things. It's a book that talks about worship in every aspect of their lives. And that's one of the biggest things. That's the point. That's one of the big emphasis of this book. What we see from Leviticus is that worship is more than worship songs. We need worship. We love our worship team, right? Okay, that was really lame. We love our worship team, right? Okay. 
They do awesome, and they lead us every time. We need to do that. But if the idea of worship is that I only worship when I have a group of people playing songs and leading me and singing, and then I stop worshiping, that's a misunderstanding of what worship is. We worship the Lord with every breath that we breathe. Everything that you do is an act of worship to God. And Leviticus shows us that. Leviticus shows us that, and the whole theme of that continues all the way into the New Testament. Romans 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's what that's getting back to, is what, what we see, how we see them sacrificing and offering and worshiping in the Old Testament our entire lives should be like that. Following Jesus is about more than just an hour on Sunday. Following Jesus is something that we do 24-7. He, we worship him in every aspect of our lives. So for the person that follows God, that should be challenging and convicting and empowering all, that, all in one. How we live matters how you go about your work, how you go about your school, how you interact with your neighbors, how you handle your finances. Every single thing about you matters. And God says something about it. And he has the best for you within all of it. And so we come to him and we trust him and we hear him and we follow him, worshiping him in every single thing. It's really important that we understand that our lives are acts of worship because it helps us set up the reality of what's going to happen when we're with God, with the Lord, after we die in eternity. Because I think that sometimes we talk, sometimes the image in churches can be like, we're going to be worshiping God forever. It's just going to be one long worship service. No, it's not. We're, yes, there'll be moments of singing. Yes, there'll be moments of praise. But what does the Bible teach us is that Work is good. Relationships is good. Community is good. That is all worship. That's what we'll be doing in his presence in eternity forever. We need to get understand that every minute of our lives is worship now because we're just going to continue to do every minute of our lives worshiping, worshiping him on that side of eternity as well. Everything is worship, not just this hour on Sunday. And so think about that as you go through the rest of your life this week. And every, whatever the task is before you, whatever the conversation is before you, how, do, how am I worshiping the Lord in my attitudes, in my reactions, in my words, in my conversation, and how I'm interacting with others? Is it a worship to Jesus? The last thing about Leviticus that we want to see, kind of, again, big picture stuff, is God wants his community to be holy as he is holy. God wants his people to be holy as he is holy. Remember, the, this book is teaching us how do we live? How, what does it mean to be the people of God? How do the people of God order their lives and go about their daily lives? There's a really important part in the middle of this book that talks about holiness. The entire book has the theme of holiness. But there's a section between chapters 18 and 19 and 20 that really hit home on this. And it states this at the beginning of chapter 18. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live 
And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow your practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Do you hear the direction from the Lord? I mean, this is him speaking directly to Moses saying, where they came from in Egypt, how the Egyptians lived, how they ordered their lives, how they thought right and wrong was, how they went about doing stuff, don't be like that because you're not Egyptian. You're the people of God. You're going to Canaan. How they order their lives, how they go about doing things, how they worship their gods, how their culture is. Don't do that because you're not Canaanite. You're my people. Follow what I'm saying. Do what I'm saying. Order your life after how I am guiding you. And then he says in chapter 19, the Lord, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Be holy means being set apart, being set apart from others. You are the people of God that are set apart from the rest of the community. You shouldn't be acting, rest of the world, you shouldn't be acting like these other cultures. You should be acting as my people. Leviticus is going to challenge us because the people of God in our world today need to be challenged with this message. Don't act like your culture is, whether they're Republican, whether they're Democrat, whether they put a label of conservative on or liberal on or whatever the rest of society holds dear. Don't think in those terms, labels or whatever. Come to the word of God and say, how is God directing me? Because that's what Leviticus is telling us. Don't be like everyone around you. Be like the Lord. Don't follow the the priorities and the things that are held dear and the values of culture follow the way that God is designing us and fashioning us and guiding us through his word. Be holy. That's way different than our society thinks. Again, not that there's like horrible, evil things prevalent everywhere. There is good, but a lot of times there's greed and look out for yourself and try to get ahead and are you going to have this and save up and all these different things and it's all focused on me. It's focused on relationships and what I can experience and not that those things are all bad, but God wants to be the guiding, defining, um, central point of our lives. If you are one of my people, he says, I am the thing that's most important. I am the thing that identifies you. I am the one that you worship. And in turn, I'm the one that's guiding how you go about your lives. You need to live holy. I feel that this is probably one of the missing, least talked about topics in Christendom in our world today. We talk about what it means to be all type of different topics. And we don't always ask, well, what does it mean to be holy in that topic. As we talk about finances, as we talk about gender, as we talk about sex, as we talk about relationships, as we talk about politics, we talk about name the topic. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to honor God in that? And too often we embrace a cultural idea that we put Christianese terms on rather than stepping away from our cultural directives and coming back to the Bible and saying, okay, God, what are you saying? And so that's what we're going to do in Leviticus. What is God telling us? 
How is this guiding us? How does this set us up and then go throughout the rest of Scripture to guide us as his people? Because we're not called to be like the rest of the world. We're called to be followers of God. We're called to be people who serve him and be holy as he is holy. God wants his community to be holy as he is holy. So as we go through this book, this awesome book, just trust me, this is an awesome book. As we go through Leviticus, we have to have these. These are true themes, values, guiding principles that are in the book that we need to know as we go through the details. God wants to be in community with you. God is worthy of your worship and he wants your worship. God wants to guide you how you live. He wants you to be holy as he is holy. Everything in this book is helping us understand those things. And so I want to challenge you. Stick with us through this series. I know for some of you, Maybe this is the first time you've been in church or maybe the first time you've been back to church. Maybe the consistency has been hard within all of that. This is going to be a different series. It's going to be something that's going to be apparently by the hands up. It's going to be new for almost all of us. And so in this, I don't want you to miss a week and miss the powerful messages that God is bringing through this part of Scripture that guides us on what it means to be his people. And the truth is, every single person in here needs this message. Because if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, every single one of us, me, you, all of us, if you follow Jesus, we have to check our hearts and ask ourselves, are we truly following Jesus obediently and faithfully to his word, or are we doing cultural stuff not realizing it? And so we need to be challenged. Are we living lives of holiness? If you're not somebody that follows the Lord, if you're new to this whole faith thing, what is this about? You need to hear this message because too often or not, we get the worst, of, the worst stories possible of Christendom are the only stories you hear. And the craziness that's there and the wrong teaching and all of that, that's what makes the clicks and so that's what gets reported. And we don't get to know what does God truly want for his people and how is God guiding him. And so that's why I want to challenge you. Stick with us for this series to hear what God is actually saying to his people and be around some people who are nowhere near perfect but are trying to hear from him and be the people that God wants us to be. And so you need to hear from him and see that example as well. This is going to be an awesome series, and I'm really excited to be able to go through this as a church. As we end today, before we get out to the rest of the festivities, and I think this is really appropriate to do as we go into Leviticus, we're going to be ending today with communion. Um, I'm going to ask uh, the ushers if you can begin passing out um, the elements. And so while they're getting those, let me give you some quick instructions. They're going to pass out some trays that have uh, the bread and then the trays that have juice. Just take those and hold on to them. We'll all do communion um, together. At a, we'll, we'll do it together at a moment. Um, when the bread trays come by, there's a smaller little plastic thing in there. The bread that's in there is gluten-free, so if anybody needs that, just know that uh, that's available to you. If you don't need that, then don't let today be your time to try gluten-free stuff. Um, and so take those, and then we'll take communion together. 
Um, we always take a moment of just quiet reflection before the Lord before uh, we go into communion to be able to prepare our hearts, to be able to uh, pray before the Lord, be able to just be quiet and hear from him. Maybe there's something that, um, the, the, man, the things that we talked about today, that God wants to be in community with you, that he's worthy of our worship, that he wants us to be holy. Maybe one of those prompts your heart, speaks to you, challenges you. You need to bring that before him or ask him, what, do you, what does he want to say to you? Whatever that might be, we're just going to take, uh, be quiet as um, prayerfully before the Lord as the elements are being passed out. And then once everybody has everything, then we'll take communion together. And so God, I pray you be with our hearts. I pray that you would hear us. I pray that we would hear from you as we just prepare to remember all that you've done for us. Let's be quiet before him. seated for a moment just while the last little bit's being passed out I want to read you a passage from Hebrews 10 the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow a dim preview of good things to come not the good things themselves the sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again year after year but they were never never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship if they could have provided perfect cleansing the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. The writer of Hebrews is re referencing back to Leviticus and what we're going to be talking about even next week. Why do we not have to keep doing these sacrifices? Well, it says in verse 10, For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his broken body, 
his shed blood for us was the sacrifice that ended the need for sacrifices. Uh, Of somebody standing in the place of another, of somebody representing and paying the price of another, Jesus did that for us. He took all of the sin of all the world on himself so that our sins could be forgiven. He rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering dead, giving us new life so that we can be forgiven, we can can graciously and mercifully come back to relationship with God as we were created to be. And so why do we no longer have to do the sacrifices? Because Jesus paid the ultimate price. And so when we come to communion and we hold this piece of bread and we have this juice reminded of his broken body, broken for us, his shed blood shed for us, that's because of his work, because of what he's done. Not that I'm a good person and not that I've tried harder or not that what my parents believed or anything like that. Because of what Jesus has done, we have life. Because of what Jesus did, we have forgiveness. We have grace. We can be called God's children. And that's what we remember when we take communion. And so God, we come before you as a family, acknowledging that, praising you for that, for your love for us, for your grace, for your mercy, for dying in our place, for rising from the dead, God, for inviting us into eternal life. God, I pray you would forgive us for the times when we compromise, when we forget, when we become apathetic, when we fall away. Draw us back to you and remind us of your love and remind us of your grace. God, I pray that we would be a church family that knows who you are and knows the truth of the gospel and has a deep sense of gratitude for all that you've done and all that you are doing. God, we remember your sacrifice. We love you immensely. We praise you, Jesus. Let's receive communion together. grateful, God, for your broken body, for your shed blood, for the cross, and for the empty tomb. We thank you, Jesus, for everything. In your name, amen. We're going to do one last song as we close today, if you want to stand with us. And as you do, if you want to pass the cups toward the middle, we'll collect those as well.